Russians don't understand how scary their country looks sometimes to the rest of the world. You get your smart people who build missiles working with their smart people who build missiles. And then in that, hopefully something magic happens and you don't launch missiles at each other in this game going um, forward. I just, Russia doesn't... Russia's got a lot of problems it needs to figure out in its space program. Howdy, folks. After a long absence, the Russia guy is back. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and I'm going to do my best to get this podcast on a weekly schedule. If all goes according to plan, there will be a new episode of the show every Wednesday, with occasional special episodes dedicated to breaking news stories released on other days when I can manage it. That's the goal. I'll do my best to get us on this new schedule. But with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's move on to today's guest. If you've ever read about Russia's space program, you'll likely recognize his name. Matt Bodner joins the podcast to talk about his work as a journalist in Moscow. Matt's reporting has appeared in the Moscow Times, Defense News, Space News Magazine, The Telegraph, and many other outlets. He was at the Vostochny Kosmodrom for a Soyuz rocket launch recently, and he's my guest today. So what are you going to learn about, hear about in this interview? Matt and I talked about how he got into reporting on Russia's space program and its military, and why on earth he got interested in Russia in the first place. He talked about life as a foreign correspondent in Moscow, the ways journalists break into the field, and how Russians and Americans annoy him in their own special ways. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. First question I had was, why space? Why space? Well, okay, so actually I, I kind of grew up around it. Uh, my dad worked at NASA during Apollo. I was born in Houston. I didn't live there for too many years of my life, but and my dad had, had basically retired from NASA by the time I was really around. But like the whole NASA thing was always very heavy in our household, and uh, of the children, I think I definitely responded strongest to it. But yeah, it was just always kind of there. What did he do? What did he do for? What was his role in Apollo? He, uh, so he actually programmed guidance computer for the lunar lander, and he likes to tell a That's story cool. about how, like, if you if you watch like any sort of recreation in pop culture of the moon landing, most of the landing scenes will show a point where they have two error codes called twelve oh one and twelve oh two, and those refer to like specific lines of code, and like. You know, this is like ancient, ancient computer already. So it's like referring to specific lines of code in the program that were kind of freaking out over some like radar telemetry that they they were trying to be very clever and cautious with the landing. And so we had these lines of codes that had uh, sort of like auto abort scenarios, and the computer started freaking out. Anyway, so there's this whole thing where they have to they have to sort of turn off and overwrite those those alarms. And uh, he likes to take credit for for being on the team that wrote those alarms and very nearly aborted the moon landing like seconds before they hit the ground. The, f- the first one? The first one, yeah. I just watched First Man, so I, I feel like I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you had those, those error codes were, were in fact in First Man. Right, um, okay. 
was looking out for those. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's basically what it was. And like when I was, I was just super into it. I had, you know, he's a huge nerd and sort of instilled me with all the huge nerd pop culture values. So like Star Trek, since as long as I can remember all that stuff. Space camp. I went to space camp twice, which which for a long time was definitely my greatest achievement in life. What is space camp other than an opportunity to eat Dippin' Dots? Okay, so more than Dippin' Dots. Um, it's uh, it's like this NASA educational camp thing. You go for a week. It's cool. You're there with like a bunch of other kids. At least for me, it was like, yeah, for me, it was the first time going away from home and stay, like staying away from home. It's kind of it's like summer camp for nerds. And basically you go there, you split off into groups, and you spend the week training for a simulated space shuttle mission. Maybe they've changed things to, to like other stuff now. Um, but when I was going, there's still the space shuttle. Um, and uh, so you go through the week, you learn about all the stuff, you, you, you play in the simulator a few times, and then the big day comes, and you spend the day, everyone at their positions in the simulator. Like The groups are pretty large, like 20, 30 kids, and so... You kind of fill out all the roles in mission control, one kid in each slot, seven kids up in the space shuttle simulator, and then all the rest are given random jobs on the space station. And you run through a simulated space shuttle mission, and that's the deal. And you get a nice little space jumpsuit. It's great. If you have children, send them to space camp. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> is it only in, is it like only in Houston or, or something? Or? Uh, it's actually, so it's in Huntsville, at least it was when I did it, which is uh, one of the you know one of the big NASA facilities is is in Huntsville, Alabama. That's actually where Werner von Braun worked. That was his little base, that NASA center down there. And so yeah, it's just it's there. There's a nice there's a nice space museum there. Not as good as the one in Houston or in DC, but they have a nice space museum there um, at at Huntsville. And uh, yeah, and and so for the longest time, I really wanted to be involved in that stuff. Um, I'm not nearly as as smart as my father is on a lot of the things you need to to be involved in space professions, mostly math, can't handle the numbers. And so that kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. I always, you know, and I was always kind of interested in like, as bad as it sounds, like I loved Tom Clancy novels when I was a kid. So like The Hunt for Red October was like one of my other big things that I just loved. There's always this like side, like Russia interest, mostly just because I liked the Cold War shtick from the movies that I was watching. And yeah, just, so just years later, when I, when I was in, in, in college, I was a political science student doing some other stuff. I like, was also studying philosophy. I really had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, just sort of like, I was, it was my last, last semester that I was going to give political science a whirl. I was just wasn't, wasn't feeling it. I was just sort of generally over like doing like American political stuff. I don't know. just was losing my interest. Just looking for classes on my last semester as a political science student, at least in my mind, there was something called post-Soviet Russian politics in the course catalog. I really had no idea what that meant because I was, you know, again, it's all very bad, but it, it speaks to, it speaks to, I think, probably where a lot of Americans are at before they receive any sort of like Russian studies training. I was like, uh, mentally, what could this course possibly be? Why would anybody care about this after the Soviet Union? <laughs> what what university is this, by the way? This is Miami, Ohio. Sorry, uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh, Miami University in Ohio. Very good Russian studies program there. Having her center, I'm sure. If any of your listeners are involved in Russian studies in the U.S., I hopefully they've heard of it. So yeah, I, I 
I just took this course not knowing what it was be. It was just the most interesting of whatever options there were. And within like two or three weeks, I was hooked uh, on the topic. Just, just hook, line, and sink. And basically, I, I think a lot of that had to do with the professor that I ended up running into, Karen Duisha, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year. She was, I mean, she was, it was really, really her doing mostly. Very well-taught class, very passionate, just a great person all around, who, uh, who basically drew me in through that class into the Russia stuff. And then under her, just sort of through a lot of really encouraging, really helpful, like, independent research projects with her and, and just sort of having her take me under her wing, figured out that I could bring that interest in space right back into what I was doing with my Russia studies thing now. And then so I just started going for like Russia space guy and seeing that nobody else was competing with me on it, but that, you know, I was being encouraged to do it by Duisha, who again, great, super supportive. And that's essentially how it happened. Let's, uh, is that like, do you recommend to aspiring, do you consider yourself a Russianist or a journalist first? Like which one is nearest and dearest to your heart? I, I consider myself a Russianist first. That's my training. Obviously, the lo- I, I've been in journalism five years now. More and more, I'm considering myself a journalist first. But I mean, it all started with the Russia stuff. Do you see yourself reporting on areas outside Russia in the future? One day I would like to. I mean, you know, it's not a place, it's it's not, I don't want to be based in Russia forever. I think there's, there's. I think everyone who's not from Russia has a hard cut off. It's just, uh, it's just far from home. And uh, yeah, you could be like me and be a bum who never goes there. <laughs> I could, I could, I could just come to New Haven and just hang out there. Um, yep. No, you're, you're an inspiration. It shows, you know, I don't need to be there to do it. Uh-huh, good. Uh, um, and yeah, so I mean, just like after, after a while, I think, I think it, yeah, Moscow is not, not like a, a career, a career posting for a journalist. I think, I just think there comes a point when, when you've done all you can do. And luckily, I mean, I, like, I don't, I don't sense myself being there. I am very much still trying to move forward with stuff, but I mean, there, there are days where I'm like, I, I should maybe look somewhere else, but then something happens and you're like, oh yeah, well, everything goes through Moscow now. So this is the place to be. But definitely, like, I, I, I see myself down the line as, as moving into something else. I don't know how well, how well that'll work. I mean, as I've just told you guys, my entire like background is Russia and like my core interests all meet in Russia stuff. And I spend all my time hovering around that. So, right. Do you find that in journalism, most of the people that you're working with and interacting with, they have journalism training, just kind of general, or do they all come from different walks? A lot of them are, I mean, in Russia anyway, they had Russia focus and then they just sort of moved into journalism one way or another. Or are they all kind of like classically trained journalists who did journalism undergraduate schooling and then maybe, you know, uh, uh, went to J school or something? Like what's, what do you encounter most often in the field? So just, just from my vantage point, what I've seen is that most of the Moscow journalists tend to be Russianists, uh, Russian studies people. W- within that, I've always found there's two types of Russian studies people. There's the, there's the lit people, and then just the politics people. People come from both sides of that. I, I wouldn't say probably more politically oriented, but just so general Russian studies is the background. I've known like one or two people who I'd say were classically trained journalists, but it's definitely... It's definitely not the way most of the Moscow journalism crowd went. Every, you know, like most people end up 
end up in Russia, I think, for different reasons than journalism. And then at least a lot of people I know I've known have and sort of worked into journalism kind of in a backwards manner. And this was especially true of the Moscow Times back in the day when you had a lot of, you know, newcomers or people trying their hands at journalism going through Moscow Times. I went to Moscow to work for Moscow Times, but a lot of the people I worked with at Moscow Times during my three and a half years there were already in, in Moscow when they were hired by Moscow Times. You know, English teachers are just there doing some other stuff, corporate jobs or whatever, hated it and wanted to transfer. So, I mean, like in general, I think the way into Moscow journalism has changed a lot in the last two years just because of the shift over at Moscow Times which I guess for people who aren't following, Moscow Times used to be a much bigger organization. It is now a much smaller organization. And uh, once it would be the place, like your sort of natural first step into Moscow journalism, I'm sure it still is, just not nearly on the scale it was two, three years ago. So if you want to be a journalist in Moscow, your best bet is to start with a Russian background, Russian studies background of some sort. I would add on top of that, just in general, from my own experience, the best thing to do is you need to take that that Russian studies background, but you need to find some sort of thing within it to make your own. Some sort of specialty that sets you apart. Like the space, the beat. space beat for me is the space beat unusual because I mean, I mean, obviously it's unusual because it's it's space. They make movies about space. It's important, but like in terms of like the geopolitical climate today, it it kind of stands out to me because it's like the one area left where there's not a cold war happening anymore. Whereas it's funny because that used to be like the pinnacle of everything. Cold war was like, Oh my gosh, who's going to get to the moon? Who's going to send us a, a satellite here or there. And now it's like the one place left where it's like, can we just please get business done and just continue as, as we were like, is that, does that make the beat unusual in that everybody else is kind of hot peace, new cold war sanctions, Crimea. And then you get to, you get beyond the atmosphere and it's like, let's just, who, where are these holes from in this, in the space, in the space station? Like it was that way. I mean, for the longest time, like it was the one sort of topic where you could still write, you know, sort of like, Oh, look how nice it is. They're cooperating. And for most, like since 2014, up until the appointment of Dmitry Rogozin earlier this year as the head of Roscosmos in about May this year, things, there was never, you know, there were a few things maybe here and there, but there was never this sense that like NASA and Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, had any sort of big problems between the two of them. A lot of these people have worked together day in, day out since the 90s. And at least when you when you ask people who work in this partnership, it's always like sunshine and rainbows with them. And like, to be honest, at times, I there were times where I wasn't sure if I was buying it. And where it just sounded a little bit like Disneyland ridiculous from NASA to just always say how great everything is. But again, until Rogozin showed up in May, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't have said there was anything like hugely amiss going on. Because they're essentially married and have this huge property together in space. And so like there's a lot of like incentive to just keep things stable. Is the is the International Space Station, is it pretty much just the Russians and the Americans, or to what degree do the other countries have? A pretty good degree. I don't I should know offhand, I don't know offhand how many components, how many of the modules are not American, but like the Europeans and the Japanese have modules. The Europeans have, the European Space Agency is like number three, and then the Japanese have two, possibly three modules. I could just be making things up, so. Is China not involved in the ISS? China is not allowed by Congress, or like NASA, by congressional order, is not allowed to ever like do anything at all 
with China. So, like they can't like go to conferences and like interact with Chinese like scientists. Like it's it's like. So does that mean that that uh, the Martian was a lie? The Martian that they would never showed, cooperate like that. The Martian depicted a very interesting development. Aspirational, yeah, aspirational. <laughs> well, like everyone in NASA, I think wants uh, like like at least people that I've talked to, like every like scientist folk, really want to like be involved with China and want to cooperate with China. And I mean, a lot of it, I assume, would operate on the same logic that for the last 20, 25 years, NASA has been tied to the hip with the Russian space program. Um, you know, you get you get your smart people who build missiles working with their smart people who build missiles. And then in that, hopefully something magic happens and you don't launch missiles at each other. Um, and they get, they get all, it's, you know, I'm sure you could argue against that stuff, but um, I think there's been a lot of value to the Russia U S space partnership that probably would be instructive for people looking at the China question, um, in, in space cooperation. I just don't really, I don't see what the negative would be. I mean, uh, I guess the standard counter argument would be, well, China's going to steal some stuff if you work with them. They'll see the big board. <laughs> yeah. They'll see the big board, uh-huh. but you know, China's really plugging along then. Like it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like alarmist guy, but, you know, there. You know, you could you could probably see for yourself recently all the headlines about how we're losing a space race to China. We're losing the moon. They're definitely progressing very quickly. I would still say they're behind. Obviously, the U.S. space program. I don't. I mean, somebody should probably do the accounting on where they are with Russia. But Russia, I'd, I'd say probably behind already. Just just because Russia's not doing new stuff, China's doing new stuff. It seems a lot, and there's a lot of. There's a lot of stuff coming out of there. So, yeah, I mean, it if it could perhaps just be that the legacy of U.S. Russia space cooperation is that it gave us a good model to work with China, who on a much longer term and a much more sustainable pace is going to be, I think, the main other in this game going forward. I just, R- Russia doesn't. Russia's got a lot of problems it needs to figure out in its space program. Going back to being a journalist in Moscow, I was curious. Would you describe living in Moscow as a foreign correspondent to be kind of a hectic lifestyle? Like, what kind of person would you say thrives in in that environment? You definitely need to be able to deal with inconveniences that pop up constantly and unexpectedly. Disorder, maybe not the right word. It's an active, sometimes chaotic, but always interesting lifestyle, I guess. You know, obviously, just by the nature of journalism, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis can, can differ greatly, and... Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd just say the most, I'd say probably like the biggest, the biggest thing that makes Moscow different. And again, I've never reported anywhere but Moscow, basically, except on the trips to get me outside of it, is just, is the general political environment that is settled over the city, I guess, over Russia and the United States in general. In the last year or two, I think specifically has become much heavier. The, the idea that you, the idea that there's this giant, I, and I hate the word, like, the, the information war stuff is annoying, but I, I mean, it serves our purposes here. There's a big game going on, and you can find yourself, I think, feeling subject to it, I think is probably the right way to put it. It's just everything you do is being criticized by one side, at least, and it hasn't happened to me too bad yet. So, I mean, I think you've probably seen stuff like this on Twitter where, like, one camp is going after one journalist for a wording thing that I 
probably could be argued is ultimately trivial. But also just like, you know, it can it can get difficult at times to get interviews in Russia. People people can be very touchy about talking to Western journalists. Not always. And it very much depends who. I, I imagine if you were used to reporting in Washington, coming to Moscow would feel highly restricted and difficult. In terms of access. In terms of access. And my and my ability to speak to that is limited by my own lack of experience and the fact that I only really operate in Moscow so far. But that is the general impression I get from discussion with colleagues and just sort of observing the industry. Shouldn't that mean that you're like you're like living in a you're living on a planet with extra high gravity, so if you were ever to go anywhere <laughs> else you'd be like you'd be like John Carter or well, something. I, right? I hope like, it works out that way. That's what I'm hoping. Well let's know we can do the follow up in a few years. Good. Good. Well, um, I probably won't be able to get you for my podcast then. Oh, no. You will have ascended. We'll do this like sentimental, like throwback to your roots thing. This this is a uh, related question, but I've, I scripted it out in advance, but you, you walked right into it. What frustrates you most about Americans and what frustrates you most about Russians in this business? Um, okay, so let's start with the Americans. The thing that frustrates me most about Americans in this business, I'm going to interpret that as also just in this game right now. Generally, Americans, I think, do have outdated views or very skewed views of Russia and what Russia is doing. And there's very much a tendency among Americans generally to view Putin as a very out-in-the-open dictator, as if he should almost be wearing like a James Bond, like evil general uniform, running around dictating global affairs, right? And there's just... It's very difficult sometimes to tell Americans about Russia in a way that doesn't conform to their existing stereotypes of Russia, if that makes sense. There's just this whole, we have this whole cultural look on Russia that is very much rooted in those Cold War movies that brought me here. <laughs> so I get it, but uh, it can just be very, very, very difficult. And at the end of the day, I don't know how much Americans, and this may be a little bit off point, but... Um, Americans are never actually really talking about Russia. They're talking about some sort of construct that they've created. And, and they're ultimately, what I'm trying to say is they're ultimately really talking about like America and American problems. And Russia, Russia, at least as I understand it, is never really being reflected in conversations we're having about Russia. It's just this sort of like figments of our ima collective imagination is maybe too strong, but there's just something not real about the Russia that I find Americans talking about constantly. And like, you don't need to go too much further beyond opinion pages and most American newspapers these days to see it where, yeah, again, like this, this, you know, one rule scheming, scheming Russia that's imminently going to take over the world or has these designs. Uh, I mean, take your pick. There's all kinds of weird characterizations out there. And I hope people are following what I'm saying that, just to me, sitting in Moscow and having done, having studied the country for a few years now, don't know where they're coming from and don't share those sentiments. Pivoting over to the Russians, and throwing it at that said, Russians don't understand how scary their country looks sometimes to the rest of the world. And I, I mean, like, I, you can you, you can also say that to Americans for sure, but. We're talking to the Russians now. It's it's pretty amazing the number of times you have to remind Russians that they they made the first move in Crimea, like right now. The the number of times and just you're sitting with Russians, 
And it could be anybody, you know, liberal Russian, pro-Putin Russian, with any sort of background and perspective. And before you know it, you can suddenly find yourself glossing over what actually happened in 2014. You know, to remind the listeners, Russia forcefully annexed territory from a neighboring state. And then they sort of, and you know, you mind it, and you, you can very quickly find yourself in this thing as well, well, you know, well, why, are you, why are you coming down on us for it, type, type deal. And it's just, Russians are not, are not taking enough time to reflect on how their actions are interpreted abroad. They're throwing their own marketing on it, and ultimately they just kind of sit there on it, sit there, and then if you actually address it at all, it's very often this sort of, uh, well, you know, what about Iraq thing? And it's just... Uh, that kind of discourse and dialogue is getting very exhausting in Moscow. And so not a very direct answer to your question, but that's my beef with the two sides. What do you think journalists working in Russia have to fear most? And that goes for both. Like maybe it's a two part question. Like what do you think that foreign, like foreigners, foreign correspondents working in Moscow and elsewhere in Russia, although they're pretty much all in Moscow, like what do they have to fear most you think? And what do you think the Russian journalists have to fear? And I assume the latter have more to fear, but still, there's probably, there's, there are concerns on both sides, and I'm curious, what do you think they are? So, with the foreign journalists, I think the fear are essentially sort of, I guess what you call light harassment uh, from the security services is obviously one that I don't, I mean, at least overtly, has never really happened to me, and I don't, I haven't heard too much about, but is is just sort of understood to be there, following, looking, you know, checking into your messaging and stuff, stuff I sort of assume is going on. When you're there, do you, do you use like VPN and all that jazz? Uh, you know, I try to use that stuff. Uh, I try to practice good cybersecurity. I couldn't tell you if I need to be or not, but it's just the understanding is that it's better not to, or better, better to practice, practice good cybersecurity stuff. Most, most foreign correspondents there, would you say, are, or they, they take those precautions? Yeah, it's, I think it's something you should be doing it no matter what. No matter where you are or no matter what you're doing in Moscow. I mean, like if you're just a tourist in Moscow, like, you know, like I've, I've talked to people who are just going there and are freaking out about it. And I don't think that that's, that's not the situation. It's not the Soviet Union. But if, yeah, I mean, like if you've, you know, if you're a journalist, you should definitely, I think, be looking at good cybersecurity stuff of VPN, encrypted messengers. I've been looking at physical keys, those physical, like... The USB stick things? Yeah, the USB oh, okay, stick wow. thing. Just because, like, I don't know, it puts my mind at ease to know I need a physical key to get into my email. Are you going to be the next guy that's picked up for having, like, a secret USB device? Oh, God. Oh, God. Kevin. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. No comment. In terms of, like, more drastic stuff, I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago already, I mean, there were Western correspondents who were killed in Russia, but it was a different time. Very different country, different situation. Now I'd say, like, the worst thing that could happen to you, like, aside from, like, getting, like, finding yourself at the center of a spy scandal framed for being a spy, is you lose your accreditation and get kicked out of the country. Or, you know, a lot of, like, the main thing I think that happens to most people, maybe even, maybe not even most, but it happens, is you'll get shamed by, like, the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman. Like publicly, oh uh-huh. yeah, she'll she'll invite you to Chechnya or something. Yeah, like or she'll just like she'll dedicate a portion of like her weekly press briefing to just how much you journalists suck. And it's, I mean, it's really quite amazing, but it happens. That's kind of a mixed package, though, right? Because it's almost like a badge of honor 
for some people maybe I, yeah i mean like i guess it depends on like why you're getting shamed like i would i would prefer that that kind of stuff didn't happen but it does and yeah i don't know like otherwise like you know terrible things have not you know knock on wood again um that's basically been like the threat list as i've as i've as i've understood it on a day-to-day basically since I arrived in Moscow five years ago, and I've never felt anything more. I think the situation is much, much different if you're a Russian journalist, a Russian citizen writing for either Russian press especially, though, I mean, we've seen recently they're starting to go after the Russian BBC. Those threats are much more in line with what lay people would generally understand them to be for a journalist in Russia. Russian journalists haven't have have been killed often what do you think about what would you have you encountered or do you have much knowledge of like this isn't like a a physical security threat but in terms of like being in the profession in russia what's your sense of like the the reputational risks even within the independent press you know being an observer of this they're just constantly at each other's throats. People that are supposedly sort of within the same camp, I guess. And so, generally, I mean, most people seem to fall, land on their feet and find a job elsewhere if they're forced out of one place or if they, like, lose face with, with one group. But do you get the sense that that is maybe equally at the front of their minds? It's not necessarily, like, a fear, because it's not like they're, they're not... It's just not sort it's, of like your professional reputation among journalists. It just seems to take so much of their time, if based based on what I can see of their lives, right? Just through Facebook and social media. Yeah, it's like, it's just they're constantly fighting amongst each, amongst themselves. And I wonder, like, being there and interacting with them, do you find that that, is also, that eats up a good chunk of their time? Or is that, maybe I'm just seeing that on social media, and in reality they're other fears are more more ever present yeah i mean i don't know obviously if you follow everyone on twitter uh you can see some shows um there's a lot of i mean i think it just sort of comes with the profession i mean you're you're writing or creating content in which other people then react to and have opinions about and i mean a lot of times you get you get brought into discussions especially online with like the scholarly people in the Russia watching community who are also engaged probably a lot more in debate. I, you know, I've seen you get into this, Kevin. The, the whole like Russia community, including the journalists, is involved in a giant discussion ongoing, especially online, about what Russia is now, where Russia's going, and what it's doing, right? I mean, it, it's been going on for a long time. In person, this stuff definitely happens. But I don't know, like Some people are just your friends, you hang out, and some people you only see at professional functions or like like a journalist meet and greet. In terms of offline interaction, I'd say it's much more dynamic. But certainly, certainly, I've gotten heated arguments with people in person. So some of what you've seen on Twitter is real. I guess I, I can assure you. And yeah. That's my interview with Matt Bodner, a Moscow-based journalist who reports widely on Russia's space and military programs. Keep your eyes peeled on Space News Magazine for his new story about the Soyuz rocket launch last December. When that article is published, I'll make sure to add a hyperlink to the description of this podcast episode. To read all of Matt's future work, be sure to follow him on Twitter at MattB0401. You can check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to that account. 
While the Russia guy was on hiatus, I suspended Patreon charges for all the show's loyal contributors. I won't reactivate the charges until I've kept this podcast active and updated for at least three straight weeks. So you have that long to cancel your pledges if you wish to break my heart. If you think you might become a new contributor to the show, that would be way better news. No pledge is too large or too small. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пяки буки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки погадать на короля. Ой ля ля, ой ля ля, погадай на короля. Ой ля ля, ой ля ля, эпа! Завтра дальняя дорога выпадает королю. У него деньжонок много, а я денежки люблю. Ой-ой-ой, ой-ой-ой.